Well, it's good to see you all on this Christmas Eve and to be together in the Lord's house for worship. And um, let me say thank you for your kindness to us. Susan and I have enjoyed the fellowship with you, and it's been our joy to come and to be with you and, and to uh, be here on these days celebrating with you together and worshiping on Sundays. We're going to take our Bibles today and look at Luke chapter 2. Um, the scripture reading is verses 1 through 20. Um, this is, of course, so familiar to us from Christmas's past, from reading this um, perhaps with our families, from uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas special, from all of these things that we think about when, when we come to Christmas. And uh, so today we're going to read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 1 and I'll read for you through verse 20. This is God's Word. Now in those days <clears throat> a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the family, of the house and the family of David. <clears throat> Excuse me. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, who was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him, for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there's been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels have gone away from them into the heavens, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, 
just has been had been told to them. This is God's word. Let's bow and ask his help as we study this passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come this morning because we know that it's a joyous time for us. It's Christmas Eve. It's a great celebration time for us as we rejoice in Jesus being born to earth for us. We thank you that we can read this passage, that we can study about it, that we can think about it, that we can ponder it like Mary did. And that, Father, we can take in the things that are here. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and teach us and guide us into all truth. And that we would walk uh, and live with the truth each day. We thank you for Jesus, for your love in sending him to us, and for the mercy that we have of being together to give you glory and praises, just like the angels. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, <clears throat> Susan and I love to watch the Discovery Channel. The Discovery Channel has all kinds of home shows on it, and those are the ones that we kind of feel, you know, gravitate, you know, they just draw us like a magnet for some reason. So one of our favorites is called Help I Wrecked My House. And it's true. Some of these people get in these homes, and you go in there, and the cameras goes right across the house and you look at these houses and you say, what in the world were these people thinking? They, they walk in, you know, what happens is they say, well, I don't think we like a wall being here. We want to open up our kitchen and make it wide open so we can have this whole area. And so they say, let's just start knocking out this wall. And they take sledgehammers and big hammers and they just start knocking out the walls. But all of a sudden they realize that that wall is not one you can take out. It's a, it's a load-bearing wall. And then there's electrical outlets all over that wall. And then there are water pipes that run through that wall. What are you going to do about all that? Well, then they say, no, I, I don't like that fireplace. I've never liked that fireplace. I'm going to take the cover off of it. So they start beating this tile and beating this stucco and knocking great big holes and everything. And pretty soon... They've wrecked their house, just like the show says. Well, Jasmine Roth, this young designer and contractor, comes in and she has to fix what they've done because they started off without a plan. And she has to make a plan for everything so that it all works. You see, their problem was they saw one thing and they said, let's just take it out. They didn't have a plan. They didn't know where they were going to put the water lines. They didn't know where they were going to put the new sink. They didn't know where they were gonna, how they were going to rearrange the electrical or where they were going to put the vent hood over the stove. They just didn't know what they were doing when they started. Well, it takes a plan, doesn't it? And what we see in the scriptures particularly, but even here in Luke, we see that God has a plan and that he's bringing it all together. So this morning, I want to look with you at God's plan for Christmas the announcement of that plan, the response to God's plan for Christmas, and how we can respond and plan for Christmas. Well, if we learn anything from the Bible, it is that God is the God that plans. Because before the creation of the world, it says he was planning, he was thinking, he was deciding what to do. 
Galatians 4, 4 and 5 say, when the exact moment in history came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem us. You see, God has a plan. He has a plan from the very beginning. And He picked an exact time for His Son to come into the world. It was in the fullness of time, the Scripture says to us. It was at the exact moment that He wanted His Son to be born into the world to save us from our sins. He was born from woman. He was born under the law. The one who made the law is the one now who places himself under the law so that he can fulfill all the law and keep it for us and guide us uh, in how to follow him. The prophecies in the Old Testament talked about God's plan. You know, in Malachi chapter 3, it says, the prophet wrote down these words, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. There were prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that talked about the coming of the Messiah, the one that everyone was looking for, God's true messenger. God's true messenger would come and he would bring a message of life. In John chapter 1, it says, Behold, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The angel Gabriel came to announce the plan to Zacharias. You remember? Zacharias was an ordinary priest. He was a a priest in the uh, group that was associated with Abijah. And he was the one that ended up in the temple at a particular time to carry out the priestly function. And the angel Gabriel came to him and talked to him about his son being the forerunner for the Messiah. And then Gabriel also announced the plan to Mary. Because he said to Mary, Mary, you have found grace with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Everywhere we look, don't we? We see the plan. We see the plan announced. We see the plan foretold. We see prophecies about God's plan to reveal His Messiah at the exact moment of history. Who, this one who was going to come into the world and save us from sin. God chose the messenger. He chose when to send Him. Nothing is left to chance. You know, um, a lot of people just grow up thinking, and, and maybe we were taught this in school somewhat, that this is kind of a chance universe and that things just kind of happen and there's no rhyme or reason for it, and we just kind of have to make the best we can when we live in this world because we're just going to, it's a chance universe and who knows what's going to happen. There's no plan, remember? People tell us this all the time. There's no plan. Nobody's up there planning. It's just a chance universe, and we just have to make the best of it as we can. But that's not the testimony of Scripture. That's not what Scripture keeps saying over and over again. Everywhere you look, God's plan is revealed. 
God's plan is revealed to different people in the scripture, and he's very careful about how he shows it. God even picked out a city for his Savior to be born in. You know, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, And you, little Bethlehem, out of you shall come forth a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And you know, not only did God pick out a city, but God, when he picked out the time, he chose to even use a secular government, the empire of Rome, to help prepare the way for his Messiah. You know, God used a politician. God used a politician. You know, we don't think about that very often, do we? Uh, it says there was this politician by the name of Octavius. Octavius was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Octavius won a real battle against Mark Anthony and Cleopatra in 31 BC, and four years later, the Roman Senate designated him as Caesar Augustus. You know, I mean, an august name, you know, a, a great title. Instead of being called Herod the Great, he was called Caesar Augustus. Now, that was an honor from the Senate of Rome to declare him Octavius, the, um, the man of the hour. So from 27 AD, from 27 BC to 14 AD, he had this long rule. And it was known as a time of peace. It was a time of prosperity. It was a time when, you know, Rome's power was great. There were roads that were all connected to all the empire so that trade could take place. There was prosperity because people were making uh, good livings and there were, there were all kinds of things happening. But every government needs money. And so what Octavius or Caesar Augustus did in order to get enough tax dollars to run his empire, he knew that he had to prepare taxes to come from every district all across the empire. And in order to get enough, he had to know how much to tax the people. And to know that, he had to know how many people there were. So he decided that there would be this great registration throughout the whole empire. And that registration would take place in stages. And it turned out that the stage that we're talking about was when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. He instituted the census, which had been proclaimed from headquarters in Rome, and he's going to declare this census to be taken and for everyone to do it by going to their ancestral city to register. Now, this is a very traditional way of having a census. To, you know, a lot of times today what we do, we have censuses. I don't go back to Arkansas where I was born you know, you don't go back to your home city. You stay where, right where you are and the census taker comes to your door or something and they estimate how many people are living in this household and how many people are in this block and how many people are in this neighborhood. We, we take censuses by declaring where people are today, but they took a census by declaring where their family was from. So Joseph, being of the family of David, 
he is required to go back to his home city. He's required to leave his village, Nazareth, in, up in Galilee, and to come up to Bethlehem. Now, you know, to show you how literal the scripture is, that word to go up is quite true because it was about the, the books tell us that the elevation at Bethlehem was about 1,800, I mean, at, um, excuse me, at Nazareth was about 1,800 feet above sea level, about like Johnson City, Tennessee, where we used to live. And the elevation in uh, Bethlehem was 2,500, about like Asheville. So you see, you literally are going up when you go up to Jerusalem and you go up to Bethlehem. There's a rise in elevation. So he had to go up and take his family, Joseph did, to, to go to Bethlehem. Now one of the strangest parts of the plan, though, were the people to whom the announcement was made. You know, you, we read in this chapter, uh, we think about the ones that have heard it. If you go back, we start off and we, we see that there was a message taken to Joseph. You know, Joseph gets the word that he's going to be, he's going to have a wife and she's going to be with child and all of that is going to take place. But Joseph is certainly not one of the, the 500, you know, in society. He's a carpenter. He's a tradesman. Uh, an ordinary guy. And then God tells Elizabeth and Zacharias. Zacharias, as I said before, is just a kind of an obscure priest. He's an obscure Levitical priest, you know, he's one that just operates, you know, when they tell him to. He only, he only has a certain time in which he can go into the temple. He's not a high priest. He's not from a high priestly family. He doesn't have any clout or power. He's just an ordinary priest. And then you come along and then there's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Nobody's more ordinary than Mary. She's a teenaged girl. She is uh, not very old, fit, what, 15 or 16 years old. She's a young woman. She has no power in society. She has no, uh, she, she doesn't have any power to snap her fingers and things happen. She's just an ordinary, teenaged, faithful young woman. And then you come in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, and we see the shepherds. Now, the shepherds were looked down upon by most people in society. They were looked down upon because, because they were shepherds, and they were unable, you know, to keep the provisions of the ceremonial law because they're always dealing with dead sheep. You know, you got dead animals. If you touched a dead animal, as far as the clean and unclean laws were, if you touched a dead animal, you were unclean for seven days. And there was a cleansing process before you could even go into the, into the temple. Uh, these guys were outsiders. They were looked down upon. They weren't high in society. They couldn't observe the clean and unclean laws because the ways they lived, they had to live out in the wilderness. Um, they were also accused of taking other people's sheep. 
You know, shepherds were kind of careless, it seems, about whose sheep were whose. You know, they were up on there and there's a bunch of sheep all on the hillside and they got theirs back and sometimes they took an extra one or two from somebody else's flock. And so they ended up with a bad reputation. Shepherds weren't trustworthy. They couldn't give testimony in court because of their of people viewing them as, as, un as untrustworthy. Not, not good with counting the, the right sheep and making sure they were all just theirs. So you look at the shepherds and for them to get the message that God's Messiah has come is strange. It's unusual. It's unusual because, you know, <clears throat> if you're going to make a big announcement, if, if I'm running for office, and I'm going to make a big announcement. I rent a hall somewhere, you know, and I invite several hundred of my closest friends. I get them all in there. I get TV ads. I get all of this. You know, you do everything you can. You get important people to come and introduce you. You try to do everything that pumps up the message. Hey, look at me. I'm going to run for government. I'm going to run as this or that, or I'm going to be involved in this. When I was growing up in Nashville, uh, all throughout the fall in the Nashville, Tennessean and the Banner, we would have these, you know, the hunt ball, you know, for the fox hunt. And it was the Vanderbilts and, the, you know, and their type friends, you know, all the big names in society. And they would go to the hunt ball or the big Christmas things that you would have in the newspaper and whose pictures, you know, they would have a whole page, a whole section, the society page in the, in the Tennessean. And you know, there's all the big names, the big insurance guys who own the insurance companies downtown, Third National Bank, you know, the bank vice presidents, all those people are in there. But when Jesus, God's son, the savior of the world comes, it's shepherds get the announcement, people nobody cares about. It's a teenage girl who finds out that she's be going to become the mother of the Messiah, a carpenter, ordinary people, an unknown priest. This is not the high society. This is just ordinary people that we wouldn't think about being given this announcement. But you know, when you think about all of that, that's good news for us. Because you see, we're all just ordinary people, aren't we? We're ordinary folk. Uh, the good news is that you don't have to be the high and mighty. You don't have to be the, in the 400 or in the Forbes 500 or whatever to get the announcement. God cares about the strangers. God cares about the poor. He cares about the needy. He cares about those who have no position or power in society. God cares about, he cares about ordinary people like us. Jesus said to the followers of John the Baptist, you know, John went up to Jesus and he's in prison and he sent his guys up to Jesus and he says, are you the one we've been looking for? Or is there somebody else? And, of course, Jesus looks at him and he says, I'll tell you what, listen, you go tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the, leopards, the lepers are cleansed, 
The dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You see, the proof of the Messiah was that all those things were happening. The proof that the Messiah was in the world was that the lepers were getting cleansed and the blind were getting to see and the, the poor were having the gospel preached to them. In other words, God was caring for the ordinary members of society. He was bringing the truth to them. If you think about the family tree of Jesus, if you go back to Matthew's genealogy, have you ever looked at carefully at who's in there? Boy, those are not the people that you and I'd put in there. Don't we try to hide the people when we go on Ancestry.com? We're not, oh, there's part of this family over here. We're, we're going to kind of forget they're in here. <laughs> no, look at who Jesus is in Jesus' family tree. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. There's four women in there. Of course, there's a bunch of men in there that were liars and, uh, you know, deceivers like Jacob and Abraham. There's women in there who had rough reputations. Tamar, who's, who had sex with her father-in-law. Rahab, the prostitute. Ruth, who was an outsider from Moab. And, you know, they said... A Moabite couldn't come into the temple up for 10 generations. Boy. Uh, and then Bathsheba, who had a reputation of having committed adultery with David the king. In this um, family tree of Jesus, there are all these names of people who were just out and out sinful people. And this tells us that Jesus came for sinners like us. The good news about Christmas is it's not just for the good. The good news about Christmas is that it's for everyone because we're all broken and we're all sinful and we all need a Savior. I've got a friend by the name of Bobby Gupta. And Bobby uh, is a missionary to India and from India. Bobby's dad grew up a high-caste Hindu. And his family were all money lenders. And uh, they were very prosperous, very well to do. And Bobby's dad worked in the family business. But Bobby's dad embezzled money from the family, from the money lender family, you know, his family. He took money from them. And when the family found out, they wouldn't let him work in the business anymore. You can imagine. They didn't want that embezzler having anything to do with the money. So they kept him away from it. They made him stay at home. And while he was staying at home one day in shame, because this was a terrible thing, he was staying home, kicked out by his own family. He heard one day a man walking down the street and reciting something, and he didn't know what it was. This man was stopping at every house and he was saying something before he moved on. Now, it turns out that this man was a Christian missionary and he was coming to every one of those houses. Those were mostly Hindus. And when he came to the Hindus' houses, of course, they wouldn't open the gate to him, so he had to stand on the outside. And when he stood on the outside, he called out scripture verses. And the one he chose to call out that day 
at Bobby Gupta's dad's house was this from 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now Bobby's dad was in shame because he was a thief and an embezzler. And he thought that the gods in the Hindu religion were only, only cared about you if you were righteous. And he couldn't believe that somebody would care about somebody who was unrighteous, who was sinful. So when he heard that message that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, he went out and he followed that missionary around and he started talking to him and asking questions. And that's how Bobby's dad came to Christ. And through Bobby's dad, Bobby came to Christ. And now there's a whole mission work in India because that missionary walked to those doors and said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, God has a plan. God had a plan for Christmas, and he, has a plan, he had a plan to save the world through a Redeemer. And he has a plan that's good news, because it's not just for the high and mighty in society, the acclaimed, it's not just for good people, it's for everyone, because all of us are broken and sinful and needy. We are all in the camp of having fallen short of the glory of God. And we're all outsiders in a sense because we've all broken God's law and fallen short of his perfect standards. Remember Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and brokenhearted and I will give you rest. Jesus welcomes the poor, the needy. He welcomes sinners because that's who he came to save. You know, the good news is for all of us. That's basically what the angels said. The angel said in verse 10 of what we read this morning, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Have you thought about how to respond to the message of Christmas that we hear every year? You know, um, in order to think about our response, I want you to think about Mary's response. If to think about Mary's response, we have to kind of turn the page back to Genesis um, to Luke chapter one, and I want to read you verses 28 and 29 of Luke chapter one. 28 says, uh, "And coming in, the angel said to her, "Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you." But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel came to Mary and greeted her and said, The Lord is with you. And Mary's response was basically, one of the commentators has said, there's basically three kinds of, three areas of her response. And the first one was she's thoughtful. She thinks about what he says. She's pondering what he said. Uh, she's thinking, you know, a lot of people come to us and they say, well, Christianity is not intellectual, it's just emotional. You're just responding emotionally to some message about salvation. But if you look at Mary, Mary's thinking, she's using her intellect, she's pondering what the angel is saying to her. You know, hail, favored one, what does that mean? What is, what is he going to tell me? 
She's thinking. Uh, some of the greatest Christians that we know have been intellectual people. Uh, in the last hundred years, you can think about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an Oxford professor of literature. Uh, as an adult, he was an agnostic. He um, was witnessed to by some of his friends who were Christians, who uh, were also college professors. And they came to him and talked to him about the faith. And he thought about it for a long time. He thought about what, what they were saying a long time. And he read and he thought. And then he came to Christ. One day he said he took a ride in a, on a, in a sidecar on a motorcycle and he said when he left his destination, uh, he left where he was from, he wasn't a Christian. He was thinking the whole way and when he got to where he was going, he was. He said he realized he believed and he had trusted Christ. He said Christianity, if false, is of no importance and if true, is of infinite importance. He said, the only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. It's super important to us, and he thought about it. Mary not only thought about it, but she had a sincere question. In Luke 1.34, uh, she says, so how can this be since I'm a virgin? Now that's basically a science question. She's saying, oh, the body doesn't work like that. You know, so how is this going to be? That's a sincere question. And you see, we can ask questions. And that's what the scripture tells us. We're not have, we don't have to shut our minds off. We can ask sincere questions. We can ask God when we don't understand. And you know what the angel said in verses 31 and 35. He said, you will conceive in your womb and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the one born from you will be the Holy Son of God. And then comes the third stage. The third stage was she submitted to it. In Luke 1.38, she said, May it be done to me according to your word. So she thought about it. She asked a sincere question. And then she submitted herself to it because she believed that this is exactly what God had for her. Now, Mary responded that way. What about the shepherds' response? In Luke chapter 2, we find out that the shepherds didn't respond like Scrooge did. You know, Scrooge, when he uh, first saw Jacob Marley, you know, he says, this must have been a piece of, of uh, undigested meat or this is, a, this is a piece of cheese or something like that that's bad. I've seen this vision because this is what it... No, the shepherds, when they saw the angels in the sky, they didn't respond like that. Like, oh no, it must have been something bad we ate from supper. What they said was, let's go to, up to Bethlehem and let's go see this thing that the Lord has made known to us. They believed it right away. They rushed to Bethlehem. It says in verse six, 16, they made haste. They found everything just as the angels said. And then they glorified and praised God uh, for the salvation that he had revealed to them. And then they were telling everyone they came in contact with. They rushed up. They told Mary and everybody that was around. They were telling them all. In verse 18 of chapter 2, 
It says this, And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. The shepherds went back, verse 20, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. Justice had been told to them. The shepherds believed it right away. They praise God for the truth that they've heard, and then they tell everybody they can. This is their response. After reading this passage, I guess there's a couple of cautions I want to throw out. And one of them is from Luke 2.18. It said, certain people when they heard, they wondered or were amazed, I think the Greek word is. They were amazed at the things which were told them. But it doesn't say what they did with their amazement. It doesn't say that they believed. It doesn't say that they embraced it. It just said they amazed. And, you know, some people, when they, when they see Christmas things, you know, they say, okay, that's, that's good for them. And they're amazed, and they just kind of, okay, we'll wonder and pass on and, and walk away. And I think that's a caution today. We need to tell people that, you know, this is not something that you just look at and then you just put on the side. This is something you have to seriously consider. This is something that's earth-shattering. As C.S. Lewis said, it can't be moderately important. It's earth-shattering, and we have to treat it that way. Um, and if we're Christians, though, if we're Christians already, I guess the question for us is, are we living in the wonder of the grace of God that's been shown to us? Are we living in the wonder of the grace that God has shown to us in sending the Savior for us? The wonder of His plan, the wonder of the way He executed the plan, the wonder of how the Messiah fulfilled all those prophecies about what the Messiah would be and what He would do and what He would accomplish. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, like I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. As Christians, are we filtering the whole world by what we understand about Scripture, from Scripture, and what we understand about the Messiah, Jesus, and what He has done in bringing us salvation? So what does it mean that the Savior of the world has come for you? Are you living out of the wonder of that to this day? Because this day has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this day for us a Savior has been born. That he's been born, that he's lived, that he's died, that he has taken our sins upon himself on the cross. That he bore the judgment that we should have had, that he paid the penalty that we deserved to, to pay ourselves. And that, Father, he has given us the righteousness that he had and that he has placed us so that your love and mercy is great for us. That you see us, when you see us, you see us as if you're seeing your own son. We thank you for the love and forgiveness and mercy and grace that you've poured out upon us. And Father, we pray that we won't forget the wonder of the gospel message. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.